Praise the Lord. Well, we've been talking about um, a, a message that was started a number of weeks ago uh, called, uh, I started calling it uh, That Day. And it was based on, on Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus is finishing his discussion with uh, the, the disciples of basically how the kingdom of God operates in terms of our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. And he ends it with these words. He says, talking to the disciples, his own disciples, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the will of my Father? Many of you will say to me, in that day. So there is a day coming when we will stand before Him and give an account of whether we did the will of the Father, not just call Him Lord. And His point here is it's so easy to call Him Lord in church and sing songs to Him, but the, the, real, the reality of His Lordship is in our life and doing not what we think is good to do, but doing what the will of the Father is. And then we begin to look at, and we'll look at right now, we'll look at John chapter 15. Jesus, at the end of His ministry, begins to, continues to explain to His disciples what that will is. So we're going to read John 15. We've been talking about these very quickly. John 15, starting in verse 9. He's talking here about, My Father uh, is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. I am the vine, like a tree, and you are the branches. And he's talking about, I'm the, bran- I'm the vine, you're the branches, and the Father's life this flows through the trunk, is flows out through the branch and produces the fruit that God wants to feed the people of the world. God wants to feed people, not physical food, but spiritual food, hope, healing, whatever it may be. And he says the key to that is you as a branch have to abide or stay vitally connected in a living relationship with me because that's how this life process flows. So that's what he says. Pick up, put verse 9 up. As the, and how he's going to explain what that life force is. As the fathers loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. So the key is abiding in his love. Now he's going to explain how to do that. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that your joy may be remain in you, that my joy remain in you, and that your joy may be full. We'll talk a little more about that later. And He makes it clear. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, I want you to do this. I want you to look to your right, look to your left, you just looked at a one another. <laughs> As I have loved you. And it's so easy to read over that, but now he's going to tell them what that means. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay his life down for his friends. And this is what Jesus did for them, and how Jesus displayed and acted out his love for us. He laid his life down for us. So the will of the Father is that we love one another as Christ has loved us, and the way we do that is by laying our life down for one another. We've talked about six different ways we can do that, and I'm not going to go through them all again, but there are different things we can do. It may be physically dying, it's caring and having compassion for one another, and really all the rest of these come out. It's bearing one another's burden, which we're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. It's forgiveness, is laying our life down for one another. We've talked about that. 
And now we've talked, last week we talked about limiting my freedom by what's best for you, not by exercising my freedom, but making the decisions of my life based on how it impacts you and what's best for you, not my rights and asserting my rights. Now, today we're going to begin to talk about applying that. And to do that, I've got to share with you these two main scriptures we're going to look at, and I'm just being as honest with you as I can are the scriptures that make me the most uncomfortable in the Bible. I won't say I don't like them because I know they're true, I know they're what God's speaking to me, but they make me very uncomfortable. And the reason they make me uncomfortable is they confront the boundaries of what I'm comfortable doing. And any time we react, at least I've learned this in my life, any time I react to something somebody says and get defensive or get angry, It's almost always because it's confronting a boundary that I've established in my life, in my heart, in my mind, with what I'm willing to do, and it's confronting me to cross that boundary line. And my anger, my all these things are defensive mechanisms that my flesh throws up so I have an excuse for not doing what the Word says to do. So I'm going to share with you what God's dealing with me about and it makes me very uncomfortable because I don't want to do this. I mean, I'll do it to a measure that I have control over, but I don't really want to do... I'm just being honest with you. Don't look at me so piously. You you haven't heard the Scriptures yet. (laughs) I'm just sharing with you. I'm not preaching something to you because I've mastered this. This is where God is challenging me to grow. So that means He's going to challenge you to grow. Now, would you put that image up? Anybody recognize him? It's Mr. Rogers. Now, I I grew up before Mr. Rogers, not before him, before his program became on television. And, 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 um, but our kids grew up, or especially older kids grew up watching that program. I had a stepbrother that was in college here in, in, in uh, Providence, uh, and his fraternity brothers used to gather around in the morning and watch that program and laugh at him because he was so simple. They had no idea the genius of this man. There's a movie that came out this year, and I don't talk about movies very often. I don't know what's going on with this microphone. There's a movie that came out this year about Mr. Rogers, actually. It's about a relationship he had with a, with a, a, a writer. And, um, and I don't buy many movies because I don't watch them again, if I, even if I've watched them the first time. But I bought this movie because it was so powerful. And it was, it was really not about Fred Rogers, but everything you saw in that program is what he was like. Uh, the articles I've read about him was he was a very difficult person to interview because he would ask you more questions about you. He's more interested in you than he was. And, and he impacted people's lives because he sincerely cared about people. He kept a list in a book that he would pray over every day. And there's a point where his wife is sharing in this. And this is all, the story's all true. They researched it out. In fact, his wife oversaw the filming of it, so it's accurate that she says, he said, well, how come he's able to do all these things? She said, because he's very intentional about it. But does anybody remember what the theme song is? Well, I, I may have to use a handheld. I don't know, is it? Somebody doesn't want us to hear this today. It's me? It's too close to my face? 
<laughs> okay, let's see how this works. All right. Um, who, who remembers the theme song? Who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood. Who are the people in your neighborhood? It's the people that you see each day. In fact, there's a scene in the movie when he is on riding the, with all that he could have done with limousines. He's riding the subway in New York and this reporter's with him and people of all ages and races that are in this, this, this subway car begin to recognize him and they start singing the song to him. These things really happened. He really was like this. And so why are we sharing this? Because we're going to talk about who is my neighbor today. To do that, let's go to the first scripture that makes me uncomfortable, Luke chapter 10. We'll spend most of our time there. Some of you can probably guess where we're going. What I don't like about this story, first of all, is about a lawyer, and it's not favorable. Jesus has been teaching some things about relationship, and you can put it up. Yeah. I didn't say anything there. Behold a certain professional, no, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. They're going to give me the handheld, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Okay, can you hear me all right? A certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer is asking the question of all questions. The question is, how can I make sure I'm going to go to heaven? This is the question so many people want to avoid, and yet it's the most important question you can ask and have an answer to. But we see that the lawyer is not asking this question because he sincerely wants to know an answer. We're going to see, it says he did it to test him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer to him, Jesus was a better lawyer than this lawyer was, because he answers him with a question. He said to him, What is written in the law, and what is your reading of it? Now, that's very significant. Don't read over it too quickly. Because what Jesus is... The, the, the lawyer is asking a religious theological question. What do we do to inherit eternal life? He's not truly trying to find the answer. We're going to see later he's trying to justify himself. But Jesus answers his question with a question, and basically the question is, you know the answer, is what he's saying. What is... What is written in the law? So Jesus brings this issue back to what has God commanded. He brings the question back to what has God... What does the Word say? Is what Jesus is asking him. You know the Word. What does the Word say? And how do you understand that? And verse 27... So he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And I'm sure there was a big smile on his face because he answered correctly. And Jesus said in verse 8, 28, You have answered rightly. Ah! But Jesus didn't stop there. 
Do this and you will live. So the lawyers asking theological questions that we can debate about. How do you get to heaven? Once saved, always saved, or do you have to? Can you lose yourself? All these theological questions the lawyer wants to bring up. And Jesus just comes back to the what do the Word say? And the lawyer knows the answer to what the Word says, but Jesus says the issue isn't what does the Word say. He said, now go do it. And so now the lawyer, with all of his lawyerly skills, wanting to justify himself. What does that mean? Wanting to establish boundaries around his responsibility. Within those boundaries, he feels good because he's doing everything right within the boundaries that he has established for his life. Boundaries of what he has to do, boundaries of how he has to talk, the boundaries that we all have in our life about what we think is right and wrong, what we think is our responsibility. <clears throat> we always all establish boundaries around those that Jesus is challenging that we are willing to lay them down. So that's what the lawyer's doing here, what it means by justifying. And he does it by saying, okay, let's define neighbor. What's scary to me is I, can, I think like this. All right, what does that word mean? So I read a verse. You shall love the Lord your God. And I want to go research what the word love means. We had a president that debated what the word is means. And the reason he debated the word is is because he wanted to excuse what he had done. And we've all done that. So we can't point fingers at him. And so... I want, to, I want to define the word because if I have a better understanding of the word, then I may not have to do what that says. That's what he's saying here. And Jesus, you don't, you, you don't debate Jesus. Don't try to outthink Jesus. Don't try, because Jesus goes right to the issue. And he does it in such a great way because he tells a story that we've all heard. So let's go into the story. Jesus answered and said, here's the story. Now, if we go into the story, there's, there's, there's three main characters in this story. Well, really four characters. Three main characters. So we go through this. I want to explain to you what they are and the significance. Because if you don't understand the significance of it, then you'll miss the real import. The first character we have is, the th- is a priest. The priest in the Old Testament was somebody chosen by God. Hebrews 5 tells us the qualifications for a priest. A priest was essentially a man chosen by God, and it was, it was a bunch of qualifications they have to go through. A man chosen by God, and his role was to represent God to the people and the people to God. He was a mediator, a go-between. So his main role was to represent God, represent God to the people and represent the people back to God. And God chose one family in the beginning. It was Aaron's family to be priests and out of that family. The second character we run into in this story is a Levite. Levi was a, one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, of, of, a descendant of Israel. And that was the tribe that was chosen by God to oversee the operation of the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple that was in Jerusalem. So they had responsibility for... They, so what we're talking about here is ministers. Uh, Miss, we're going to bring this down to today. This is talking about 
the pastor or the pastors, and this is talking about the staff and the elders and those that are ministering to the people. These are people, the priests and the Levite, are people chosen by God to do His work and represent Him. And now let's talk about the Samaritan. He's the third character in this story. The Samaritan was came from this area of Samaria, which was in the middle of Palestine. And by and large, they were half Jew and half Gentile. They were biracial. And what we're going to see in this story is a racial issue. But as Jesus is talking about it, he doesn't talk in terms of race. He talks in terms of the commandment to love. But what's the occasion of this is essentially a racial attitude that the two first parties had. And he's using this as to, to bore right in to the hearts of those Jews that were listening to him and to convict them by saying, this half-breed, is what he's saying, this half-breed did what you're called to do that you haven't done. So you know the story. Jesus answered that a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know who he is. I don't know anything about his background. We know this much. He fell among thieves. They stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance, a certain priest, probably on his way to church to preach, (laughs) a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, so he's seen the man who's injured, He passed by on the other, he crossed the street so he didn't have to feel uncomfortable walking past him. So the priest is establishing a boundary for himself. I don't want to deal with that. So I'm, although I saw it, it's not my responsibility, so I feel more comfortable and not confronted with his need. I'm going to cross the street because I'm going to do God's work. I think I'll preach facing this way because it's more comfortable. (laughs) Let's go to verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, explain to who he is, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed on the other side, did the same thing. So he's going to church because he's got to catch up with the pastor because he doesn't want to be late. I I don't know what they were doing. But what they clearly were doing is avoiding a responsibility that they saw and saying, this is not my responsibility. And because they were uncomfortable, which means somewhere inside they knew it was, they got to the other side, so they were further away from looking at it and being uncomfortable. See, when we face things that make us uncomfortable, we have a whole lot of ways that we've learned and developed to avoid looking at them because they make us uncomfortable comfortable just as I feel in this message. (laughs) And I hope you feel, because I'm going to make you uncomfortable if I can. No. (laughs) Okay, let's go on to verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, boy, this was an insult to the Jews. A certain Samaritan, as he was journey, came where he was, and he saw him also. When he saw him, He had compassion. 
And here's the difference. He had compassion. Verse 33, 4. And so he knelt down and prayed for him and blessed him and said, Be healed in Jesus' name. Be blessed and went about his business. I'll pray for you tomorrow. I'm going to call the prayer line and I'm going to have people pray for you and went on and just left him where he was. No, he didn't do that, did he? You know, a lot of times we say, well, pray for people and it's kind of like crossing the street. So I'll I'll pray for you. Ouch. There are times we use praying for people as an excuse so we can feel like I'm doing something for them, but I don't want to be inconvenienced to cross the street. Mm. No, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine and set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35. Now, he was on his way to do something. So he was willing to set aside his agenda for that day. He was willing to set aside his plans for that day to meet this man's need. But notice when he's done, he doesn't stop there. On the next day, he had departed and he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. So he's bandaged his wounds with best he could and now he brings him to the Hampton Inn. Didn't take him to Hotel 6. He took him to the Hampton Inn and he, he got a room for him And the next morning, he hands his American Express card to the proprietor and says, whatever he needs, charge it to my account, and when I'm able to come back, I'm going to check on him and see how well he's doing. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Verse 36, let's see the lawyers. So, which of these three, this is Jesus, which of these three was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Verse 37. He said, and he who showed mercy on him. See, the lawyer already knew the answer when he asked the question. He didn't ask the question because he had, was ignorant and didn't know what to do. He was asking the question, so as long as it was a question, as long as he was understanding it, as long as he was talking about it, he didn't have to do it. And we're so good at thinking about things, talking about things, planning things, worrying about things, doing everything else, but actually crossing that street and doing what Jesus said to do. Go and do likewise. Let's look at the second story that makes me very uncomfortable. Since I'm uncomfortable, let's all be uncomfortable. I want to share my burden with you. (laughs) Matthew 25. This comes at the end of a series of parables and stories which Jesus is essentially talking about that day. 
when the end is going to come. And this is a story about, we're going to pick up in Matthew 25, verse, um, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them, one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now, in the Bible... Sheep represent those that belong to God. They're, they're His, that He cares for. And goats represent independent people that don't belong to Him. They're just showing up and doing their own things and butting everybody, causing trouble. He will shut the sheep on His right. That's the, always the position of authority and position of, 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 of honor. And the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on His right hand, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that were prepared for you. Let's stop there a second. Back in verse 32, it says, All the nations were gathered together around Him. Now I want to mention that to you because theologians debate who He's talking about here. And I know one time when Lafayette Scales preached this, he talked about this is a judgment of nations based on how they treated Israel. So I'm just sharing with you that the theologians and pastors and people that know a whole lot more than I do, there's a debate about who's he really talking to you to. But the point I believe God wants us to get out of this has nothing to do with those theological issues. It has to do with the words Jesus actually says. So let's go back to verse um, uh, verse 34. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Verse 35. Why? Because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Verse 36, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Verse 37, they didn't get this. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? Verse 38, when did we see you a stranger and take you in and naked or clothe you? Verse 39, or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Why did we do these things? And the king will answer and say to him, Assuredly, I say to you, as much as you did it on one to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. We're, we're not going to go any further with this, with that verses, those verses. Notice what, because then he goes on to say, those of you on the left, you didn't do these things. And they say, well, how come we didn't do these things? Because you never did them when the least of these, you didn't do them to me. So the point that here is that Jesus is saying, what you do for others, especially the least of them, those that are the weakest, like the children and the elderly, those that are infirm, those that cannot help themselves, that I, have a, I love all of you, but that when you do it under the least of these, what you do towards them, you are doing towards me. The Apostle Paul heard similar words on the road to Damascus when he was stopped by Jesus in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, he says, who are you, Lord? And Paul, Jesus says, to, speaks directly from heaven, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't going to arrest Jesus. He was going to arrest and persecute members of Jesus' body. 
So the point here is this. Jesus, regardless of what you think or I think, Jesus equates each of us with himself. Because in his mind, this is not some theory or symbol, we are his body in the earth. So the way we treat one another is how we're treating his body. Over in 1 Corinthians 11, we're not going to put the verses up there because of time, Jesus is talking about communion service. And he's talking to people that were not treating the elements of the communion correctly. They were not treating the bread and they were not treating the wine, or in our case, our grape juice, correctly. And he warns at the end of this, he says, be careful, he says, because because if you treat the blood, the the bread, in an unworthy manner, and you're you're guilty of it. And he talks about it in terms of not respecting that it is the body. And so many people teach, and I believe it's it's talking about not respecting, it's the body of Christ that that bread represents, or some people believe it is. It doesn't matter right now. But it applies to the... You and I are that body. So the way we treat one another is how we respect and honor Christ's own body. And then he goes on with this warning. Because you've not respected my body that way, many of you are weak and many of you are sick and a number have actually died. Is it possible that some of the struggles we have with sickness and disease is because we don't recognize one another as literally his body. And so we're treating one another. We want to treat him wonderful in church. We want to treat him wonderful, but we treat one another with anger, with jealousy, all the things we've already talked about. Well, Pastor, this is, uh, this is challenging. Yes, it is. I want to read to you a quote from a book that's changed my life. I keep reading it over and over again. This is, you have heard me mention this before. This is a passage, and if you want this, it's in the notes that are published. Just go to online, Pastor's Notes, and they're in my notes for today. From the book Cost of Discipleship, Chapter 2 by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he's talking about this issue, about this, the, the Good Samaritan story. He said, The final question, who is my neighbor? Is the parting shot of despair or else self-confidence? The lawyer's trying to justify his disobedience. The answer is, you are the neighbor. Go along and try to be obedient by loving others. Listen to this. Neighborliness is not a quality in other people. It's simply their claim on ourselves. Every moment and every situation challenges us to action and obedience. We literally have no time to sit down and ask ourselves whether so-and-so is our neighbor or not. We must get into action and obey. We must behave like a neighbor to him. But perhaps that shocks you. Perhaps you still think you ought to think it out beforehand and know what you ought to do. To that, there's only one answer. You can only know and think about it by actually doing it. You can only learn what obedience is by obeying. It's no use asking questions, for it is only through obedience that you come to learn the truth. The reaction that I have when I read the Good Samaritan and when I read 
this last one we looked at. Is yeah, but I, I have I have limited time, I have limited resources, I have important things to do. I know they're my neighbor. I'm no one's supposed to reach out. I know I'm not supposed to put limits on, but but uh, you know there are limits to what I can do. And Bonhoeffer's answer, which is Jesus's answer, is you only have limits of what you can do because you've established your own limits. Because remember what we started. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Every branch that abides in me bears much fruit. And my Father prunes those branches that bear fruit so that they'll bear more fruit. Remember, it is the, the, the life, the ability to do this caring, this loving does not come from the branch. It flows through the branch. It comes from the trunk and the trunk receives it from the soil and nutrition. And Jesus makes clear, I've given to you the branch, the love that I've gotten from my Father. It has no limits. And I'm calling, and I've given that love to you that has no limits. We looked at several weeks ago at John 13, verse 1. says, and he loved them to the end. There was no, in fact, the proof of how much he loved them is he laid his life down for that motley crew. Just as he laid his life down for you and me. And he's called us to lay our lives down for one another. And we establish boundaries of how far we're willing to go based on what we want to give, what we want to give of ourselves. And while we do that, we are holding back, damming up with inside of us the love of Christ that has no limits. The prayer that I've been praying for years in Ephesians 3, the Lord brought me back to this this morning in my prayer time. He said, what is that prayer, John? Is that you would come to know together with all the saints. Well, go backwards. He says that, that, that you would, through your power of your glory, that you would strengthen us with might, ability, God's ability, in our inner man, so that Christ may be able to live in you and dwell in you by faith. That being rooted and grounded in love, not faith, not power, not good, rooted and grounded in love, God's nature, you may come to know together with all the saints, listen to this, what is the breadth What are the boundaries? What is the depth? What is the height? What is the width? In other words, that you would come to know the boundaries of the love of God that's been given to you in Christ so that you may be filled up, you may be filled up with all of my fullness. Remember I I quoted earlier, Jesus said that my joy may remain in you and you may be full of it. That joy, most Christians don't even experience the joy, let alone full of it, because it's damned up inside of us because we're looking at the bound. I don't want to do this. I've got my job to do. I've got this stuff to do. All the while, the love of Christ that's been put in us wants to come out and we're holding it back because we're afraid we're not going to have enough. And all of heaven is in you. All of God's love, so that we might be, so if you want to experience that, start giving it, it's not a new concept, start giving it away. And not, and in the situations that God will, who are the people in your neighborhood? They're the people who you meet each day. I want to close going by going back to John chapter 15. Can you go back there? Verse 9, just read through it again. As the fathers loved me, 
I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will automatically abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you and greater love has no one this. Then he lays his life down for his friends. I want to take a moment here just to apply this in our own personal lives. So I'm going to ask you to just kind of close your eyes and be quiet. I want you to ask yourself some questions. We're going to do this prayerfully. Father, help us. Help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you. And the question, the first question to ask myself is, can I recognize in me boundaries that I have set up that limit who I will love and how far I'm willing to go to care for? We had, while you're meditating on that, we had an occasion on Wednesday night to hear neighbors of ours in this church that have been wounded, that have been injured, just as this man in the Samaritan story was. He was physically injured. But we have people in this congregation, our brothers and sisters, who have been wounded, hurt inside by being treated differently because of the color of their skin. Are we willing to cross the street and help heal their wounds by caring enough? It's easy to read these stories and think about other situations, but this is right where we are. We have these situations right here in this fellowship. So the first question is, can I recognize in, my, in me, inside of me, boundaries that I set up limiting who and how far I'm willing to go to care for others? And here's the more important question. Am I honestly willing to allow the Holy Spirit to lead me to step across those boundaries that I've set up? Because He will do it with you if you are willing, because He's at work in you, both to will and to do the Father's good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, these words are for me very challenging. I'm a private person. I like my own space. I deal with people all the time. And I like my own space and my own time. And these words confront me and what I like and what I don't like. And Lord, there are times I'm scared, either that I won't do it or I'm scared that I will do it and it will cost me too much. I'm asking you to help me and help all of us. The prayer you've told us to pray, strengthen us by your glory with might, your ability in our inner man so that Christ may be able to dwell in us by faith. That being rooted and grounded in love, we may come to know together with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, depth and to know by experience as we live it out the love of God, Christ, 
that we may be filled with all of your fullness. This church together, be filled with all of your fullness. Now unto him, not me, him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power, your power that works in us. Be all glory in your church to all generations, forever and ever. Amen and amen.